Turn with me, if you would, now to Revelation 21. We're going to be looking at Revelation 21 and 22, finishing our series this morning, uh, God willing. Uh, it begins on page 1041 in your pew Bible. Shouldn't be too hard to find. It's the last page <laughs> before whatever back matter there might be. So uh, we are reading the final two chapters of this letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The final two chapters of the New Testament, the New Covenant, revelation of Jesus Christ and instruction to the church more broadly. We're reading the last two chapters of the Word of God revealed, the final two chapters in the collection, the final two chapters to have been composed. This is God's final Word. This is the bottom line. This is the end of the story. This is our focus and our hope. This is our eternal future. A few minutes into this reality, we will barely be able to remember this one. But whatever we do remember of this one will simply be the backdrop for glorying in what we are experiencing at the moment. My friends, this is more real than this. God's final word. This is where it's headed. Let's give Him our attention as we read His word and then talk about it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height all equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper with the city, and the city, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the city and the street of the city was pure gold transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy Still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So reads the Word of God. And with that, we've completed the public reading of this letter that promises blessing for reading aloud the words of this prophecy. I love the fact that we can say we've read this book together aloud. At some point future, we may actually just get together and do it all in one sitting now understanding all the more the blessing that comes. But we'll say more about that as the time comes. 
You can tell that my voice is uh, a little weaker this morning than normal. Um, I expected that I was past the cold symptoms. It seemed to be the case, but uh, I think it's still here. We had set up to have uh, perhaps Pastor Kip uh, lead communion this morning afterwards. I think that would be a good idea. We had actually confirmed opposite, so I'm confirming again <laughs> this morning. Um, and just pray with me that my voice holds out until we finish this morning. And then uh, I will probably step out of the room uh, in order to not uh, serve communion in my present state. I actually do believe I'm past this, by the way. I think it's just the using of the voice that's causing the problem this morning. But thank you for your prayers in any case. Let's look into this text of Scripture now. For several years, we have included on the front of our bulletin where we are in the church calendar, what, what today is in the, the church progression, uh, the church celebration of the plan and purpose of redemption that has been a custom for us. We draw attention to it. We pay attention to things like Advent and the four Sundays headed up to Christmas. And we acknowledge, even through the rest of the year, what special Sunday or season this is in the church year. And I really appreciate this practice, by the way. I appreciate it primarily because I believe it's much harder than we think to hear and to heed the charge that is so often included in the expositions of the last days that appear in the New Testament. That charge to stay awake. To keep our eyes fixed on the return of the Lord and to live our lives every day in light of that day. I think it's harder to do than we expect. And I think marking time according to the Christian calendar just helps us do that. It helps us stay awake. It helps us remember what's primary. The church calendar marks the passage of time according to the great works of God's redemption history, centering around Jesus' birth and his resurrection. Those are the two primary pieces around which the church calendar circulates, Christmas and Easter. Rather than progressing according to the great events of national or world history, that's the alternative. And observing the one doesn't mean we can't observe the other, Observing the church calendar doesn't mean we forget about our national calendar. You, you can see that here at Grace Church of the Page, we don't ignore dates like Mother's Day and Father's Day, Memorial's Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July, Juneteenth, other national holidays. We don't ignore any, any of those, even as we note Advent and Christmas with Christmas tide, and increasingly Epiphany and, and Lent in preparation for Easter in much the same way that Advent prepares us for Christmas. We focus in after the Easter season, Easter tide, finishing with, um, with uh, Pentecost. Pentecost. Thank you. <laughs> it escaped my, uh, escaped my memory there for a minute. With, with Pentecost and then um, following that ascension, the, or ascension followed by Pentecost, and then into what we call common time that takes us all the way up through just recently till the year finishes with Christ the King Sunday that we made something out of last week 
um, in ways that we're, perhaps we haven't before. And then when Advent arrives, the first Sunday of Advent, we're actually beginning the new year again. I think that's helpful. I think that's beneficial to believers. That season between Christmas and Easter tends to focus on Jesus' ministry on earth, particularly his ministry to the Gentiles. And then that season of common time from Pentecost through to the end of the year focuses on the walk of the church, on their relationship with the Lord, on their work in the world, their mission, fulfilling the Great Commission. It's really helpful to keep this in front of us and to be thinking about the passage of time in Christian terms, not just according to a national calendar. Both are helpful. Both have their place. But surely this is primary for us. So why do we mark time in this way? Primarily, we do it to stay awake. That's one of the efforts we can make to stay awake. Also, though, Moses reflected in Psalm 90 on the brevity and the frailty of life. And right at the heart of that psalm, he makes a poignant request in verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses talks about numbering our days, thinking biblically about time and the brevity and of time and the frailty of life during this season, he makes that a point of wisdom. That that's how you gain wisdom, understanding who you are and where you are in God's plan of redemption. And the brief time that you are present on this stage is called by Scripture wisdom. That's good. We want that. This request it's almost as ignored, though, as it is important. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Well, this morning is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent does look primarily to Christ's second coming, using His first coming as a model. Paul described it well this morning in our welcome. And in Revelation 21 and 22 here, we see a text of Scripture that captures the full hope of the return of Christ more so than any other text of Scripture in the Bible. This helps us know what we're looking forward to. This helps us anchor our vision. And it's not just the hope of a city with golden streets and pearly gates. It's the dwelling place of God with His people for all eternity that's what we're looking forward to, the full and final delivery of our salvation. And Revelation 21 and 22 help us to do that in remarkable ways, ways beyond, as I said, any other text of Scripture. Listen to what one theologian wrote about Revelation as a whole in this topic in particular. Richard Baucom wrote, we recall that part of the strategy of Revelation in creating a symbolic world for its readers to enter, was to redirect their imaginative response to the world. Do you hear that? 
We recall that part of the strategy of Revelation in creating a symbolic world for its readers to enter was to redirect their imaginative response to the world. If they were to dissociate themselves from Babylon and its corrupting influence on their own cities, they needed not only to be shown Roman civilization in a different light from the way its own propaganda portrayed it, they also needed an alternative. If they were metaphorically to come out of Babylon, they needed somewhere to go, another city to belong to. If they were to resist the powerful allurements of Babylon, they needed an alternative and greater attraction. Since Babylon is the city or the greater city that rules over the kings of the earth and even over the earthly Jerusalem, this alternative could belong only to the end times future. It is God's alternative city the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. It belongs to the future. But through John's vision, it exercises its, it, it exercises its attraction already. It's a beautiful description of the already and the not yet of what we're seeing here. It's not yet present. But through the text of Scripture, through these two chapters... We're not just being told about something that will come. But having trusted Christ as Savior and received the down payment of the Holy Spirit who unites us with Christ and therefore with one another as the body of Christ looking forward to that day, we are already tasting of this city here and now. And this city has already captured our imagination here and now. It's present with us as we gather today. Not yet as it fully and finally will be, but already in some form through the grace and mercy and salvation of Christ. So let's follow John through his description of this holy city that our imaginations might be captured and we might be strengthened in our view of the world to come, to the extent that it actually makes a difference here and now today. It makes a difference to us. That's what we're looking for. So we're going to follow John through his emotional telling of this new world and what it looks like. Five distinct emotions that we've listed for you there in the bulletin that we'll follow. First, he's overwhelmed in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 21. And then in nine, verses 9 through 21, enabled or strengthened by one of the angels. Then he's enthralled, completely captivated by the end of chapter 21, astounded in some ways in verses 1 through 5 of 22, and then we'll see impassioned for the telling of this story in verses 6 through 22, or 21 of chapter 22. So let's walk through this text together and have our imaginations fired by the word of God. I say John is overwhelmed in this first eight verses of chapter 21. Why? Well, there's a whole new heaven and new earth to report on. 
You just got to let that sink in. We get comfortable with that language, but we shouldn't. John has been taken through this entire series of visions and now sees a new heaven and a new earth that almost certainly are going to stretch him beyond anything he's seen so far. Imagine just seeing it, not to mention being charged with describing it. It's like Paul trying to describe our resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. It's just an impossible task. That's what makes it so interesting to note what John did here as he's seeking to describe this city. One more time, at least, and he'll do it more in this chapter, these two chapters, he reached back into the Old Testament and virtually quoted Isaiah 65, 17 to begin his description of this new city. We read there in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. John is still quoting the Old Testament prophets, even as he gets so far into this series of visions that he's describing the new heaven and the new earth as the last stage of what's happening. But then he's quickly struck by another observation. In this new creation, he says, before he even finishes what we've labeled as verse 1, he sees that there is no more sea. Just such an interesting description. And just for the sake of brevity this morning, I don't think this means that there's no ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think that's what's being told to us here. Rather, back in chapter 4, verse 6, do you remember that we saw a sea of glass like crystal before the throne of God in that text? And we said there that the sea was a symbol of of untamed evil and chaos in Old Testament Israel. That not even the shore is quiet. That's again from Isaiah 57. But we also said back in chapter 4 that this sea of glass seems to be present in this description of the throne room of heaven because it makes God unapproachable. It's magnifying in that scene his, his transcendence, his, his separateness, his apartness. In some senses, therefore, his holiness. He is set apart from people, and this sea of glass is separating them from him. But now, as one of the first descriptions of the new heaven and new earth, it's gone. It's absent. He's near at this point. Then John changed his metaphor again. In fact, he changed it twice more in verse 2 alone. Metaphors we've already introduced this morning. A city and then a bride. Two more metaphors to try to grasp this city. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What an amazing description of a city. The city is described as a bride, and the bride is described as a city. This is interesting. This emphasizes both community 
and yet the intimacy that we'll enjoy with God and with one another in, the new, in our new home. And, and it's talking about the celebration of Christ's return, what's already been described as a marriage supper, a wedding reception. How could there be anything happier than that? But all these descriptions together are simply additional ways of depicting the same reality that John already tried to communicate in verse 1. He's just layering his metaphors again as we've seen him do before. This is like the lion who is a lamb all over again. How can a lion and a lamb merge into one when the two are so different from one another? But somehow the merging of those two helps us understand the nature of Jesus. In fact, in chapter 5, it helps us recognize Jesus. And again, here the layering of metaphors is happening in ways that make it sound like those two can't be put together. But as you do put them together, you begin to see characteristics of the bride and the place where God will dwell with his people for all eternity. John is saying one impression just won't cut it. It just doesn't give the whole picture. All these images woven together only begin to describe the glory of the new creation and our discernment of what it's intended to communicate. What John is actually seeing, what he's being shown. We're going to continue on with these descriptions before trying to put them together even a bit further. The next thing he notices is the wiping away of tears. The wiping away of death and of pain. That's what struck him next here in verse 4. The removal of all evil and hardship and suffering and sorrow from this place. So while you're still trying to work out this city and bride image, you're getting additional elements. Namely, no more crying or pain or, or, or hardship or struggle. No more strife, no more separation, no more division. The troubled church of chapters 2 and 3 is now completely pure in the presence of God. The dead and dirty one of Ephesians chapter 2 has been cleansed by the washing of water with the word such that she now stands before God in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing but holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. These blessings are stated in the negative because it's far easier for us to understand what we won't have any longer than to attempt, even, to imagine what we will have. So let's reflect on it. What brings your tears? 
What is it that makes you cry in this life? Unfulfilled dreams? Lack of intimacy? Relationship? Personal failure? Illness? Whether yours or that of a loved one? Lost loved ones? Maybe hardened hearts among family or friends? Disunity, strife, and relationship? Or maybe hardness of heart toward people in need? A church that shrugs off suffering? Are those some of the things that might bring tears? Almost certainly at the heart of it here are those tears of personal loss and failure. Those things that we didn't think our happiness and our joy was tied to them, but boy, when they were taken away or even just threatened, we discovered that maybe we loved them more than we thought we did. And we find it hard to believe that God is good and loving and not supplying us with those things or not protecting those things in our experience. Those surely seem to be at the center of what's being talked about here. Well, what we read, my friends, in verse 4 is that these tears will neither be ignored nor shamed in the new Jerusalem. Even if they reflect affections that are marred by sin, they're not going to be shamed in the presence of the true and living God when He fully and finally delivers His salvation. They'll be wiped away. Have you thought about this? Your tears will be wiped away it's an amazing statement when we're talking about the grandiose nature of what's being described here in Revelation 21 and 22. Time and attention has been given in the text of God's Word to this portion of that reality. All tears will be wiped away. In order to be wiped away, they first need to be noticed by our Heavenly Father. That means he'll see them. He'll be aware of them. Your tears and mine. Then they'll need to be acknowledged, perhaps lingered over with sympathy sufficient to assure us that he really does understand what has brought these tears. Then to wipe them away, to wipe away our tears, our Father will have to, to touch us as we weep. There, there's, there's no other way to conceive of this than that. And that's the metaphor that John has given under the inspiration of the Spirit, that God Himself will wipe away our tears. We read about the anthropomorphic hand of God all the way through Scripture. 
It's the means of deliverance, of salvation, of protection, of comfort, of encouragement, strength. And here, a tenderness almost beyond description. He will wipe away our tears. Our Father will have to touch us as we weep. His hands made wet by our grief. Personally entering into whatever it is that has brought us to tears, just as He entered into our sinfulness with us through the presence of His Son to deliver us and reconcile us to Himself. We make too little of what Jesus did, not remembering that He became guilty before God on our behalf that we might be reconciled to God by faith in Him. That's what's entailed in the first coming of Jesus. That's the backdrop for anticipating His second coming and this experience in the presence of God. This is all entailed, by the way, in the fact that there's no more sea. Nothing separating us from God any longer. But how much more tender a picture is this? It's overwhelming. Then God speaks. Verse 4, behold, I am making all things new. Think of that. What will this mean for you? I'm making all things new. We, we just got through the tears image but now we're hearing all things made new. The past wiped away with all its regrets. Let that sink in as well. What does that mean for you? The past is gone. And all things made new. That's the way Paul talked about Salvation to the Galatian church, and it comes back right here. And then, where does, where does Scripture go from there? We're told, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That, that means the inclination is going to be to think that when you hear, behold, I'm making all things new, well, you, you, surely, you surely can't put, put that away. I, I have some memories of things that those are real. Those, those come with me. They're just part of my identity, part of who I am. And, and that's not what the text says. I'm making all things new, and then write this down, for these words are trustworthy. In other words, it will be done. Are you thirsty for this day? Verse 6, and he said, it is done. I am the Alpha, and the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, it is all in my hands, and I can get this done. This is a done deal. None of the questions that come up in our minds about hearing that all things will be made new are greater. None of the, none of the sins that we've committed are greater than the ability of God to put them away and make all things new 
He's saying, I'm the beginning and the end. I can do this, and I will. I will get it done. And then he finishes. To the thirsty, <laughs> to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. There it is. There's your refreshment. Entirely free of charge. Drinking of the living water. No cost. Verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This is our inheritance. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. I almost want to stop here. But there's a, a warning about cutting short what's written here, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Next, we read in verse 8 that those who pursue their own gratification in this life will have no part in being comforted in this way or satisfied by God in this way. That's verse 8. But those who come to me, we might say in this series, those who worship and obey and endure the ones who conquer will have this heritage. Again, overwhelming. Now you can tell we've spent much more time in the first emotion than we'll spend in the rest. We're going to move more quickly now through the text. But that's all foundational. Now I think we're set up to move through this a bit more fluidly. So we moved into this next section beginning in verse 9 of chapter 21. One of the seven angels that we met back in chapter 15 now provides a tremendous advantage to John. He called him up to a high mountain in verse 9 to get a good view of the new Jerusalem as it comes down out of heaven from God, verse 10. This is like Moses on Mount Nebo seeing the promised land, Deuteronomy 34. Or, or Jesus viewing the kingdoms of the world when he was being tempted by Satan, Matthew 4. But this is not a second coming down of this city. It's a retelling of verse 2, now from a new and a better vantage point. It's kind of like Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 tells a creation account as well. It's not a different one from chapter 1. It's the same one, now from a new perspective. And we get that same structure here. This time, it was the angel who called the city, the bride, the wife of the lamb, verse 9, the wife of the one who stood in the throne room of God and took the scroll from his hand to begin opening these seals way back in chapter 6 and 7. This is Jesus. This is the bridegroom as he was identified in chapter 18, verse 23. And John is witnessing the descent out of heaven of the place where bride and groom will live. A place so perfectly crafted for their life together that it becomes representative of and reflective of both of them, of both the bride and the groom. It is the bride, we're told, and it glistens with God's glory because His presence is there. 
This city is so identified with them both that it's representative of them both. They are one with their environment and the place that has been designed by God for them to live. This is the garden all over again. Where did Adam and Eve and the garden get separated from one another? Well, we can answer that. It was following their sin when they were expelled from the garden. But while living there, they were God's representatives in that place at one with their environment. And that's the way it's been described here as John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven from this glorious vantage point that he's been granted by the angel. This is perfection. We spend our lives looking for perfection, longing for perfection, don't we? The perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect husband or wife, the perfect vacation, having the perfect children. Then as we age, we cease longing for perfection so much as we begin regretting never having found it. That can mark the cynicism of old age. We know nothing's perfect. But somehow, even so, we never give up pursuit of it. We never give up the hope of it. Why is that? Are we slow learners? I don't think so at all. I believe it's because God has woven that desire so deeply into our hearts that we just can't be truly happy without that perfection being realized. He's made us to long for that. It's something less than human to give up that longing. I believe this longing is so deeply rooted within us that it even shapes our fantasies. When I preached this text of Scripture about nine years ago from this same pulpit, I opened with an illustration that some people still remember and remind me of, talking about the Disney movies that my kids used to watch. Do some of you remember that? At that point, I was talking about ones like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King and Tarzan, the ones that were being watched when my older ones were that age and were younger. And I remember talking about how captivating those stories were as I was thinking about it, especially in relation to the book of Revelation, it occurred to me that each of those five movies that I just mentioned, and many more besides, have the very same story retold with different characters each time. The sensitive hero rescues the heroine, oftentimes either just too gracious to be believed or misunderstood in her environment, one of the two, but the sensitive hero rescues the, the gracious heroine. He defeats their arch enemy at the 11th hour. And then the two of them marry and live together happily ever after in the kingdom that he rules. I'm not summarizing Revelation at the moment. I'm summarizing the Disney movies. 
This longing shapes our fantasies. Some of those stories were told very differently originally, but when Disney gets their hands on it, it turns into this story again. Go figure. We love that fantasy. And having introduced Revelation first this morning, you can see what those stories are imitating. That fantasy is anchored in reality. It's real. We love the fantasy. But it's more than that. I believe with Solomon that God has put eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 And we long for that. Every moment of every day, we long for eternity. We were made for eternity. And we can't help ourselves. We long for this story. I believe with Augustine in the opening paragraph of his confessions that God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find their all in him. And I don't believe our hearts will ever be truly satisfied until the series of events that's described right here in Revelation 21 and 22 actually takes place and we're a part of that story. I don't think our hearts will ever be satisfied. I don't think our hunger for perfection will ever be filled until this takes place. This is reality. It really is. And everything else is fantasy. The rest of chapter 21 is given to description of this breathtaking residence of the bride and groom. You've already heard it read. I will only point out one intriguing detail. This city is a cube. Verse 16, the city lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Who measures the height of a city? The fact that it's a cube, though, is just one more symbol, right? There is another cube in Scripture, right? It's the Holy of Holies. The place where God dwelled among His people. Remember that loud voice from before the throne back in verse 3? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people this city, this whole place is the new Holy of Holies, the eternal Holy of Holies, the place where God chooses to put His name there. That's the way it was described in the Old Testament. The place that God has appointed to dwell among His people. And it was in the wake of this powerful description of the city that John began to notice that some things were missing 
from this city. Some things beyond the sea and the self-absorbed people. There's other things that aren't here. And he was intrigued by that. First, John said in verse 22 here, I saw no more temple. I saw no temple in the city. <laughs> There's no need for it, right? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus told us this was coming. Tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And John observed, this is the temple of his body. This is now the place where God dwells among his people. In Jesus. And now, in the spirit inhabited, redeemed ones from all the nations that will join them in this city. We'll commune with our triune God directly in our new home, in His eternal Holy of Holies. Next, verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Again, God's got that. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. This light will never fade. In the ancient world, night was a time of danger and evil. The city gates would be shut for safety. It's the same today, although most cities don't have gates to shut. But night is still the time of danger and evil. But none of that here. None of that here. In this city, its gates will never be shut, verse 25. Because there's no threat here. The self-gratifying people are gone. But there's more here. Its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night. <laughs> night never happens in this city. The lightness of the lamb can't be quenched quelled. There's no darkness here. Children, do you hear this? There's no darkness here. No more night. I remember all sorts of malevolent beings that inhabited my room at night. Snakes under the bed. Trolls in my toy box. Shadows of God only knew what in the closet. And heaven forbid that I turn out the light before closing the closet door. Because I would let them all out. Not here. Not in this city. There will be nothing impure in this city. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, only those clothed in the righteousness of Jesus because they've accepted his death as payment for their sins. That's who lives here. John was enthralled, but now he's astounded. 
as we move into chapter 22, what he sees here just restructures all of his categories. As chapter 22 opens, he starts putting it all together. Look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves on the trees were for the healing of the nations. So the tree that was protected by angels when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden is accessible again. And now there are two of them. Two of them accomplishing the healing of the nations. This could mean only one thing, right? Verse 3 tells us, No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is banished. It's lifted. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And now the leaves on the trees will maintain the health of all who live in this city. And the river that sustains them flows from the throne of God. Eternal life flowing forth from the throne of God as living water. Ezekiel saw this river and described it in compelling detail. Do you remember from Ezekiel 47, the river that started as a trickle and then turned into a river that couldn't even be crossed? The river of the water of life. The river that makes the oceans fresh. Ezekiel 47, verse 8. And having been astounded, John is now impassioned. Impassioned to share these, these visions broadly. His writing isn't some feeble attempt to generate mutual encouragement among the ranks of an oppressed church. He's not just trying to whip up their ability to, to speak positively to one another. Now, this is God himself speaking through his appointed prophet to his oppressed people in every generation of the church. There's much repetition in this final section. You can see it, you heard it as we read it. As John brings this remarkable letter to a conclusion. Some things repeat verses from earlier on in the letter. But we've made note of those as we've moved along, so I won't point those out here. But you can see the repetition even within this section. You can see it, for instance, in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Followed by verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Followed by verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. Do you think he wants us to understand that he's coming soon? You can also see it in the latter half of verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. With verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. And we know from this writing the unity of those two ideas. Walking in the way and washing our robes. It's been intertwined throughout this letter. 
So let me simply summarize for you what John is saying in verses 16 to 19, or I'm sorry, verses 6 to 19 here, making each statement just once so that we can hear it. John is saying the entire testimony in this book is true. Verse 6, 13, 16, 20. Christ is coming soon. Verse 7, 10, 12, 20. The one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book will be blessed. Verses 6 and 7 and 14. And rewarded, verse 12, by God. Worshiping God alone is our calling. Verses 8 and 9. And obedience is our highest priority. 7, 9, 11, 14, and 15. This invitation remains open to all who will come. Verse 17. But don't even think of trying to change the terms as they've been laid out here. Verse 11, 18, and 19. Period. End of quote. This entire testimony is true. Christ is coming soon. The one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book will be blessed and rewarded by God. Worshiping God alone is our calling, and obedience is our highest priority. This invitation remains open to all who will come. But don't even think of trying to change the terms as they've been laid out here. There it is. And what an impassioned invitation this is that is presented. It's the central charge of this whole letter, not to mention this closing section. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires, take the water of life without price. Do you look forward to living in this city? Amen. Does it captivate your mind on a daily basis? Is it often hard to think about other things? Is it so much on your heart that it's also on your face and in your conversations? Is it? For all of us who know Christ, this is our future. It's coming. You can count on it. We will live here. But is it the central aim around which your whole life revolves? Or does that sound excessive? Like too much heaven? Well, let me ask, if you knew that you were going to inherit a hundred million dollars, do you think your life would begin to revolve around the day on which it was to be delivered? Would you confirm the time and location where the will was going to be executed? Or if you just became engaged to the man or the woman of your dreams, would people around you be able to tell that this day is different than all other days? Well, we've done better than all of this, haven't we? Reminding ourselves of the fact that from this passage, this is our future, 
It's like receiving a report card that tells us how we're doing in the most important subject in our lives. Namely, living in light of our promised eternity. Seeing this passage and asking ourselves these questions helps us to discern. It gives us a report card on how we're doing at staying awake as we're so often charged to do with regard to the second coming of Christ. Report card pickup day was always an anticipated event in the Worley home. How'd each one do this quarter? In the tough subjects? In the favorite subjects? Did they hit the mark? Did they do their best? Did they manage the quarter well? And are their grades and the teachers' comments reflective of that? When I arrived home at the end of report card pickup day, I never had to wonder how my kids had done. They wore it on their faces. It was impossible to hide. When you're walking with God, truly looking forward to your wedding day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, you just can't hide it. You can't get enough of His Word. You can't get enough of His people. You can't give enough to His work, time or money. You just want to walk in His ways, holy and pure, fully at peace with Him to the very depths of your soul. That's what happens in the hearts of God's people when this vision catches a hold of us. You want to be godly, and you recognize that means acting on the conviction that God's ways are always better than ours. Always. Peter expressed this very same thought and included a penetrating question stated so powerfully that I want to close with it this morning. I want to close this morning's message. I want to close this section of Revelation. I want to close the exposition of this book by actually reading some words from Peter that pose this as a question to us all. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and with this, we close. Peter wrote, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the hearts, or then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
End quote from 2 Peter 3. My friends, this is our inheritance. This is the testimony of the New Testament. The testimony of Jesus, of Peter, of Paul, and of the church as they've engaged with this text of Scripture ever since it was first written. Do we believe these truths? That's not rhetorical. Do we believe these truths? Do our lives show it? Do our lives show it? That's our inheritance. That's not something we whip up from within ourselves. That's something that just can't be contained. When we've engaged God in His Word and have been folded into this salvation that Christ has offered. Let's pray now. And those who are going to serve communion, please come to the front along with the musicians. Heavenly Father, we've borrowed time this morning to finish this exposition of a most important text of Scripture. I pray that if this extension has put anyone in hardship, that you would pour out your grace upon that need. And that now, in this moment, in this hour, you would meet with us by your Spirit. And as we remember the body and blood of the Lord, that we would be strengthened by you through this act of remembrance to live in light of the truths we've just rehearsed together from this beautiful text of Scripture. And that all of this would be done to the praise of your glory and to the exaltation of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.